and welcome back. I appreciate you tuning in, especially if uh, you listened to the last episode, which I know could have been a little controversial, that you guys have come back, so I appreciate that. Then again, for those of you who are routine listeners of the podcast, I'm sure that nothing from the last episode was really shocking or surprising about my perspectives. If you are a newer listener and you are continuing to tune in after last week's episode, I'll thank you. So this past weekend, uh, HBO Max released a George Carlin documentary called George Carlin's American Dream. And I've always considered myself a fan of George Carlin. I really liked his intellectual take on things. I don't necessarily agree with every perspective or point of view that he has had. So I wouldn't have called myself ever a diehard George Carlin fan, but definitely thought he was very funny, very intelligent, very well-spoken, and a very unique comedian. I will say that by the end of the second part, it is a two-part documentary, I started to realize how similar my cynical ideologies that I have are with George Carlin. And while I don't think I ever really watched any of his last several specials that he was doing as he was getting much older, I'm starting to realize now after watching the documentary that this podcast, it's not that much different than many of those last specials that he made. You know, there's tons of cynicism, a complete disdain with humanity, loathing for religion, and an absolute hatred of the political system. So even though I never really watched those, boy, do we have a lot in common. I will say that watching that documentary is kind of what inspired the topic for this episode of the podcast. So I do want to make sure that I credit that documentary and George Carlin with kind of inspiring me to take a deeper dive into some certain nuggets that maybe I've talked about briefly before or have never really brought up and I'm going to discuss today. Additionally, I was further inspired to take my up to this point 74 episodes of the podcast and I have decided I am going to make a book out of it. I'm probably just going to self-publish it because that's the day and age we live in. But why not? Why not take I've got so much show prep from all of these episodes, bullet points of things I wanted to talk about. I'm sure there will be excerpts or quotes from the actual podcasts that I recorded that I can also kind of plug in to a written form and the title of the book is going to be called We Are Doomed and why it's all your fault. But really, if I take the 74 episodes worth of stuff that I have and just condense certain things into more chapter-based categorical approaches, I have plenty, plenty to make a book right now. I just have to basically take it out of bullet form and put it into written form. I'm obviously not going to, you know, include every single thing I've discussed on the podcast. Like, there's not going to be a chapter about cats versus dogs because that has nothing to do with why we as humanity and a society are doomed. But, I mean, some of the things that I've discussed on the podcast, which would fit very well into that book, would be things like religion, technology, social media, social media, politics, consumerism, relationships, war, the two-sided divisiveness that we have on pretty much every single issue in this country, pharmaceuticals, narcissism, misinformation in the media, identities and pronouns. I mean, that's just, you know, a smattering of things. I'm sure I'll find more things or maybe some of those things will be kind of lumped into one chapter. I will say that I just had this idea over the weekend. It is only Monday and I have already written the first seven pages of the book. Now, you're thinking seven pages, that's not that much. Yeah, 
well, it's when you're writing a book, because I have written a novel before, you kind of always want to look at the word count more so than the pages. So I'm currently sitting at around a 2,000 word count after just kind of looking online, like what is the average word count of a book that maybe isn't necessarily a fictional novel? Ideally, you want to be somewhere in like the 70,000 word range. So, I mean, I've only made a little dent with 2,000 words, but I'm only partially into the first chapter. I am not concerned that I will get close or beyond that 70,000 word count. And that's not a fixed hard rule. I mean, especially if I self-publish this thing, I, I can make it, you know, 14 pages if I want to. Granted, that would be more like a pamphlet than a book, but don't worry, it will be more than 14 pages. Also, when I talk about pages, I'm talking about eight and a half by 11 in a Word document, not a book that usually the page size is going to be half of that size, which means one written page in my document will roughly equate to two pages in the finished book. So we'll see how that goes. I'll keep you updated and apprised. For those of you who are routine listeners to the podcast, you probably would never have a need to read that book because a lot of it is just going to be me rehashing and slightly rephrasing or giving a little bit more thought to certain things that I've already discussed on the podcast. Obviously, when I'm talking and recording the podcast, like I said, I've got bullet points, but there's nothing fixed about what I'm actually going to say or what I want to say. Sometimes I go off on tangents. One idea will lead me down a rabbit hole that I didn't plan on going down. And obviously in written form, I can craft that a little better. I can take my time with my thoughts and make sure that everything is phrased as eloquently and hopefully intellectually as possible. And yes, I'm trying to make sure that I do it with a somewhat lighthearted comedic approach. But it will definitely be a lot more cynicism and dire warnings to people than it will be just me being silly. And it's not like I can plug in sound effects to a book like I do here on the podcast to add a little bit of lightheartedness. So not necessarily going to recommend that once it's done that any of my diehard podcast listeners go purchase the book. But on the bright side, it would be an opportunity for me to, outside of the podcast medium, get a lot of these ideas across that I've put a lot of time and research and effort into. Because guess what? Not everybody listens to podcasts. And perhaps a lot of the people that don't listen to podcasts are still old school people that like to read books. So yes, I am adding that to my list of shit that I'm already doing because, boy, I needed just one more thing to add to my list in addition to, you know, my job at the school, door dashing on the side, trying to ramp up my piano tuning business, the podcast, which takes a lot of time every single week, music, live performances. Yeah, let's just... Just throw a book into the mix. That's a good idea. But again, luckily, I already have the source material in bullet print or spoken form. I'm essentially just kind of translating all of that into a book form. On a, a change of subject, I do want to say that I have officially given up on my Apple Watch. I have been wearing an Apple Watch since the very first Apple Watch came out. I think that was seven years ago, and I'm just sick of it. It's become more of a nuisance than it has an actual benefit to me. Nothing is worse than being on stage and trying to perform, and then some spam caller comes in and my wrist is vibrating for 30 seconds while I'm trying to play and sing. It's very annoying. 
I don't really use it for any of the intended purposes. If I need to know the time, I can look at my phone or my iPad or the clock in my car or the microwave in my house. I don't have to have a watch on. It has been an adjustment because I have basically worn a watch every single day of my life since I was a little kid. Even before the Apple Watch, I always had a watch on, some kind of watch. I have not replaced the Apple Watch with an actual watch. I'm just trying to see, you know, how long I can go and maybe not lean on a watch anymore. It's been not quite a week since I gave up on the Apple Watch, but I will say that I still, probably several times a day, lift my wrist to take a look at the time or the weather, so I'm still adapting to that, but I'm sure that will go away. But my daughter was recently inquiring about an Apple Watch and, you know, did I know how much they cost? Is Are there used ones out there? Yada, yada. So I went ahead and just gave her my Apple Watch that basically performed two functions. A, it gave Zoe an Apple Watch since she has clearly been thinking about getting one. And B, by giving it away, it meant that I can't fall back on the Apple Watch now and be like, I changed my mind. I think I'm going to go back to the Apple Watch. Nope, can't do it. I've already formatted it, set it up for her. She came over and got it and we got her all set up with it. So I am 100% Apple Watch free. Not that any of you really care that much, but I just wanted to share that because it has been a slight adjustment that I have been making over the last week. And before getting to our weekly topic, I do want to mention another thing because I don't know why I just constantly start doing new things, but in the last week I have started learning German. No reason, just because using the uh, Duolingo app to learn German. And I am, I've got a lot of German in my blood. My last name is Schaefer, a very German name. And it's coming pretty naturally. I mean, I don't think it's, or naturlich. Every time I try and actually speak German, I end up, you know, speaking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I don't, I need to learn how to do it in my own voice. But to all my German-speaking listeners out there, I just want to say, Hallo und danke fürs Suchen. I hope I pronounced that correctly. That would be, hello and thank you for listening. Like I said, I'm only, you know, like five days into, or six days, I want to say now, into learning German. I'm still learning very basics. So, you know, again, I don't expect myself to be perfect right now. I don't expect all my pronunciations to be perfect, but I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And right now, I believe in the rankings on Duolingo for people who have made the most progress in this recent period of time, I am number one of all of their users. So, Zupa. So, we will now jump into the topic. I want to say this might be a longer episode. I know I've said that before. Before and it turned out not being super long, but I have somewhere in the area of 16 pages of show prep. Usually my show prep is on average around seven, eight pages. So we got a lot to dive into, so I'm going to get to it right now. Yay! And the topic is the choice is yours. What we're going to talk about is choice and all of the choices that we have as Americans, human beings. And again, there was a lot of stuff in the George Carlin documentary that kind of made me think about this a little bit more and really want to take a deep dive into that. You know, at, at least here in America, we all live in this finger quotes free society and we feel like we just have so many choices to choose from on everything. But in reality, we only choose from what we are given to choose from. And that kind of means that to an extent, 
all of that choice that we think we have, it's an illusion. It's not really a choice. It's only a choice if someone deems that we are given that choice. You know, you only have a choice of so many versions and variations of a Toyota vehicle because those are the ones that Toyota want to put on the market this year. You only have a choice of certain ice cream flavors that Ben and Jerry's wants to put out based on how many flavors Ben and Jerry wants to release at any given time. And those can seem like a lot of choices, but the choice that you're making is based on a dictated offering from someone else. So technically, if you want a specific flavor of Ben and Jerry's ice cream that they don't make, you can't make that choice. That's why, to an extent, it is an illusion. Maybe you could find that flavor from another ice cream maker, but you can't just choose anything you want. So let's just start with the obvious, the political parties, the political system. You know, in in that regard, there's not a whole lot of choice. I mean, in most major elections, especially presidential elections, there are two choices. There is an utter lack of third party candidates in, you know, really the discussion and conversation about the presidential election. There's certainly a total lack of third parties at any of the televised presidential debates. And primarily that is because of what's called the 15 percent rule. So there is a commission on presidential debates, the CPD, and in addition to a couple basic rules that just make you know sense as far as your eligibility to even run for president, in regard to the actual debate stage, there is a 15 percent rule, which means you have to, the candidates have to have 15 percent or more of the electorate as determined by the average of five national public opinion polls conducted by organizations that are selected by by the CPD. We all know how polls go. Hillary Clinton was easily supposed to beat Donald Trump if you believed the polls. I'm going to be honest, I've never been asked to participate in a poll ever. So I don't know who they're contacting, what their source material is, but let me just say that, you know, is it really fair to only let people be a part of the televised presidential debates based on poll data, which we know is oftentimes relatively inaccurate? Let people make a choice. A choice between two people is not a choice. And let's not forget the fact that technically you only have a choice between two actual presidents every eight years because every other election you typically have the incumbent, the sitting president, that is running for re-election. So you only have one new choice or the choice to go with the existing president again. Not much of a choice, especially for something like the president. There's a hell of a lot more Toyota models out there to choose from than presidential candidates in any given election. So a lot of you might be thinking, well, what's the point, you know, of the third parties if primarily the majority of the American people identify as either Democrat or Republican? What chance do those independents really stand? Well, let me tell you, as of October 2020, regarding registered voters, 34 percent of those registered voters identified as independent, 33 percent identified as Democrat, 29 percent identified as Republican. So more people, at least when they were polled, identify as independent over either Democrat or Republican. Yet, when we look at the results in an actual election, like in the last election, Biden received 51% compared to Trump's 47%, which means only 2% of the nation actually voted for an independent candidate, despite the fact that 34% of them supposedly identify as independent. Why is this? Well, probably because most people consider a vote 
for an independent candidate like a wasted vote. It's a throwaway. I hear that all the time from people. Well, I'd rather vote for this guy, but if I do that, then I'm basically letting the guy that I don't want to win win because I threw my vote away. That's the whole point of voting. We can sway the system if people actually vote the way they want to vote instead of trying to vote to keep someone from winning. You're almost essentially voting to make a loser, not voting to make a winner. That's not how voting is supposed to work. Voting is not a game of chess. It should not be done strategically. And I'm sure if we had some of these independents actually participating in the presidential televised debates, then I'm sure a lot more people would vote for independent because they would actually know what these people's stances are on certain issues. Or they might realize how foolish and stupid the Republican and Democrat candidates sound compared to this person with fresh ideas. So really, when it comes to president, you have almost no choice. One or the other. Let's look at our Congress. So in the House of Representatives, there are zero independents sitting in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, there are two independents. Out of a total of 485 seats between the House of Representatives and the Senate, that is two. Two independents. That makes up 4% of the total voting power. And I also want to point out that if you research those two independents, they actually vote Democrat every time because there's no other way to vote. The vote is one side or the other. Those two independents, they're not bringing stuff to the table that they're going to create like people to actually think freely. People vote with their party. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. And it kills progress. So while we're on, you know, the political spectrum of choice, let's look at pro-choice versus pro-life. I mean, this is recently a hot topic due to the fact that there's a possible chance that Roe v. Wade, I don't know why they always call it V, we all know it means versus, you never say Tyson v. Holyfield, the Yankees v. the Mets. But when it comes to legal stuff, it's always just V. But Roe v. Wade may very possibly be overturned. And all that means is that it would give the power to the states to determine if abortion is legal or not in that state. Which, honestly, that's how it should be. The states are supposed to have the power. We are the United States of America. We're not all just one big country called America. And we should want our state governments more involved because obviously they're more regional, local and state governments. They have a better understanding of the people in their area because that could be completely different. I assure you that the people in West Virginia have very much different interests and ideas of what the law should be or expectations of humanity should be than people living in Southern California. And this is kind of a side note, but I just want to point out I've found this interesting. As of 2020, almost 20 million people were employed by local or state government, with another 3 million employed by the federal government. Granted, think about how much tax you pay. Do you pay more tax to the federal government or more tax to the state government? Oh, we pay a lot more to the federal government, even though, you know, there's only 3 million employed for the federal government. But what this means is based on the last census of people over the age of 18, 9 percent of the United States adult population works for either state, local, or federal government. That's a lot of people working in government. That means that if you have 10 people in a room, there's a good chance that one of them at any given time works for a government agency. 
kind of scary that we have that much government involvement in our lives. But going back to Roe v. Wade, you know, while abortion is technically legal nationwide because of that ruling, the actual rules and requirements surrounding abortion are still on a state level. Every state has a different set of rules or regulations that actually define how the abortion takes place. If you need to go to an actual doctor, a licensed doctor, or do you just go to the local coat hanger manufacturer in your area? So why not just make the legality on a state level basis? So I'm not really opposed to them overturning Roe v. Wade, just simply because I am always in favor of the states having the power over the federal government. You know, when it boils down to the actual argument of pro-choice versus, I almost said V, versus pro-life, I'm kind of on the fence. I think it's circumstantial. I don't really think that you should be able to just go have an abortion because of irresponsibility, because you decided to get drunk one night and let some dude drop a hot load in you, and then you don't even know his name the next morning because he disappeared in the middle of the night. And now you don't want to raise that child. You had the choice, speaking of choice, to not drink too much. You had the choice to not fuck that dude. You had a lot of choices before then. So a lot of abortions are just simply because of people who are behaving irresponsibly. Now, if there is an instance where there is a rape or a a medical concern for either the life of the mother or the child, I do think that, yes, abortion should be allowed on a situational, circumstantial basis. But no, I don't think it should be just loosely available to anyone just because they got drunk and made fucksies with a stranger and then woke up and said, oopsie. And when it comes to abortion, really what it boils down to is the whole topic is viability. What is the time that a baby is deemed viable? Or under the outlined terms in Roe v. Wade, viability would mean when a baby is able to live outside of the mother's womb and body independently, even if that means using medical, essentially life support to keep it alive. At what point can it live outside of the womb? And that is what they deem as viable. And prior to the child being viable, based on Roe v. Wade, you can get an abortion. In Roe v. Wade, they determined viability to take place at around 28 weeks into the pregnancy. The average length of a pregnancy to term is 40 weeks. So essentially, you can legally abort a fetus 70% of the way into the pregnancy. That's a little ridiculous. But going back to what I said at the very beginning of all this, talking about the illusion of choice and that you only have choice when that choice is allowed or given to you, this is the same thing. I mean, it's if the government deems so. You don't have choice if the government says abortion is illegal nationwide. If the feds stepped up and said, nope, we are making it illegal, not a state-by-state decision, now you don't have that choice. So again, choice is dependent on who's giving you the ability to make a choice or not make a choice, or if they're giving you the ability to make a choice, what choices they're giving you. And in addition to other choices that exist as an alternative to abortion, like, as I said, maybe not getting drunk, maybe not, you know, banging the dude that you don't know, you have other choices like birth control. You know, that's an option. And right now, while I'm not sure how I feel about this either, there's the morning after pill, which is essentially just a very early abortion in a tablet form or however, I don't know if it's a pill or I'm assuming because it's called the morning after pill. I don't know if it's a tablet or a capsule or a gel cap. But while I'm talking about the morning after pill, let's go ahead and jump into the next topic when it comes to choice and talk about drugs and the legality and availability of drugs. Get out of here, Dewey. What are y'all doing in here? 
It's called cocaine. And you don't want no part of this shit. Cocaine? What's it do? It turns all your bad feelings into good feelings. It's a nightmare. I'm thinking maybe I'd like to try me some of that cocaine. So we'll keep talking about the morning after pill since that's kind of what this segue is. And I will tell you that you can currently purchase that in an aisle of your local drugstore. You don't need to consult a doctor. You don't even need to go to the pharmacy in your local drugstore to buy it like you would if you wanted, let's say, like Sudafed, Max, or whatever. You just walk down the aisle. It's right where they keep the condoms and the lube, which is kind of odd. That's kind of like putting anti-diarrhea medicine in the taco aisle at the grocery store. Just in case what you're buying goes wrong, may we suggest if sell this item? I will tell you that one of the pills is called Plan B. Oh, that's a weird name. Plan B. And it costs around 50 bucks. I did look at what the average cost to raise a child is right now, and raising a child from birth to the age of 18 is roughly about $272,000. So, you know, that $50 Plan B pill, that's a pretty big savings. Now, condoms you can buy at any age. So technically an eight-year-old could walk in and buy condoms from a gas station or a drugstore. Actual birth control for females, though, that has to be done with a medical prescription. You can get the Plan B with nothing and you only have to be 17 years old to buy the plan b the only exception to the rule of needing a prescription if you want female birth control would be you could go to like a planned parenthood and then they will provide that to you however in most cases it does require a doctor visit and then paperwork a written prescription having to go once a month to pick it up you can't just go buy it maybe less people would need plan b if you could just buy birth control in the aisle but let's not forget that the federal government is head heavily involved in the pharmaceutical companies. Everything is regulated and okayed by governmental agencies, but this also allows these drug companies to constantly advertise. I mean, I'm sure you've seen all the stupid commercials for every stupid little pill, and they make a lot of money. Like, for example, Pfizer reported an $81.3 billion revenue in 2021. Now, in 2020, Pfizer reported $41.7 billion. Wonder where that, you know, extra $40 billion came in. Could it be from mandated vaccines? So don't think that these companies aren't getting rich because of the government. And don't think the government isn't getting kickbacks from these companies. It's all dirty. Let's look at alcohol and nicotine. You're allowed to buy those. Those are perfectly fine, but you have to be 21 to get either. Now, let's not forget, you only have to be 17 years old to buy an abortion in a box with the Plan B. And talking about the government taking advantage of people and making certain things available, limiting your choices, the government likes to heavily tax alcohol and nicotine, which is probably one of the reasons that they're legal. I will tell you that in 2021, the United States made $10 billion just off of alcohol tax. That's a lot of money. So no, alcohol is is not going anywhere. It will not be made illegal because it is a profitable item for the government. We've seen major changes with marijuana, with weed, and actually now at this point, it is legal in 37 states. 18 of those 37 states, it is 100% like you don't need a prescription, a medical card, nothing. Even in the ones that require a medical card, like here in Ohio, I know that all you pretty much have to do is make like a phone call. You don't have to actually go see anyone. You pay like 250 bucks. You tell them, I have a hard time sleeping at night or I have migraines. And then they'll say, okay. 
Here's your card. Now you can go buy all the weed you want. And then if you get pulled over and you got a bunch of weed with you, as long as you're not driving completely impaired by that weed, it's perfectly legal. Without the card, you're going to jail. And a lot of people go to jail for drug offenses. Currently in the federal prison system, 45.2% of inmates are there on drug-related charges. Now, we only have 15% roughly in state prisons, but that's a lot. I did not jot down the numbers of why people are in there for weapons charges or arson or battery, but I'll tell you that none of them came close. Very few of them are even in double digits, let alone 45%. That's a lot. And who's paying for those prisoners to be incarcerated and be guarded and eat meals? I am. You are comes out of our tax dollars. Luckily, you know, a lot of us are alcoholics and we're helping to fund $10 billion in alcohol tax revenue for the government to help pay for that stuff. But prescription drugs is, you know, it is a absolutely huge market. Approximately 66% of Americans are on at least one prescription drug. That's a lot. And it's all regulated by the government. It just seems silly that you're a total piece of shit if you smoke a doobie. All right, all right, all right. And you don't have your medical marijuana card. But if you're hopped up on Prozac or Ritalin or all of these ridiculous drugs for all of these ridiculous made-up fucking diseases, well, that's okay. Why? Because the government is making money off you. So you have a lot of choices when it comes to drugs, but only choices provided to you. You do have choices for things that aren't technically provided like illegal narcotics, but you have zero choice if you get caught with said narcotics that you're going to jail. You'll make up that, you know, large percentage of people being incarcerated for drugs that weren't okayed or approved by the government because they can't figure out how to make money off of it yet. So moving on to religion and faith, there's a lot of choices out there when it comes to your religion and your faith. However, as of 2021, I will tell you that only 47% of the American population consider him or herself faith-based. That means 53% of the people out there in this country don't consider themselves to have faith. I mean, maybe they have some kind of spirituality, but they don't believe in an organized religion or a specific God. And just like pharmaceuticals, there's lots of money to be made for churches and organized religions. And for the most part, they're completely devoid of any tax liability, which to me kind of seems to violate the whole notion of separation of church and state. Why aren't they required to pay taxes the same way as a small business that might actually be able to provide a service to more than just a small percentage of the population? So how much money do churches and religious organizations make? I'll tell you. In 2019, religious organizations earned approximately $128 billion just from offering and tithings. Oh, I don't know if you know what tithing is, but that's where you take, uh, I want to say it's 10 or 15% of your annual income and you give that money to the church in order to get God's favor. That $128 billion does not include additional revenue that these religious organizations and preachers make off of books, videos, DVDs, 
So they're raking it in. But going back to the tax liability, I will tell you that the average tax liability of a small business in the United States is 20% of their profits. So if we were to tax churches like businesses, that would actually make the government over $25 billion per year. That's two and a half times the amount they make just off our alcohol tax. But the problem is, is you have all of these politicians that want to consider themselves faith-based because they think it speaks to a certain faction of the voter and makes them look more wholesome and honest. And that's why they're not going to tax the churches, even though it would make them money. It's hypocrisy. So how many choices do you have? Well, obviously you've got a slew of religions, but just with Christianity alone, there was a study in 2021 that shows there were approximately 200 different denominations of Christianity. And of course, all of them think the other denomination is a bunch of morons. Protestants think Baptists are stupid. Baptists think Catholics are idiots. Granted, they're all worshiping the same God. In fact, not only are all Christians reading the same fucking book and worshiping the same God, but Jews and Muslims are also worshiping the exact same God as Christians. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above we Christians are just the only ones that add Jesus flavoring to their drinks. But it's this whole constant, like all this fighting over my God is better than your God or my version of our God is more correct. And going back to the politicians, I mean, how many times do you hear a president say, God bless the USA, God bless us all, God bless America. They always throw that in there so much for separation of church and state. And a lot of times when you hear something like that, it's when we're going to war. They're announcing a war and then saying, God bless our troops. But let me tell you, that is absolute empty speech. God is not fighting for anyone. Now, I don't really believe that a God exists, but even if you believe in God, he's not fighting for you or for your specific cause. Because let's not forget, Jewish faith, Muslim faith, all the same God. Why does he favor you over them? It's why I think it's so silly when, you know, after a, you know, like a Super Bowl or a big, you know, sport event, you've got someone, I give all thanks to God, or they're praying before the game in order to have God secure the win for them. You and your opponents are all praying to the same God. So you think God favors you more than the guy on the other sideline? That's silly talk. All right, so now let's move on to facts and social causes. You know, when it comes to facts, you should not be able to choose what fact is correct or not. It's a fact. You can pick and choose your opinions. You can pick and choose your ideologies. You cannot pick and choose facts, but it happens all the time. Honestly, science has sadly become way more objective and perspective-based, even though it's supposed to be purely fact-based. COVID vaccines are a perfect example. You know, those supporting getting the vaccine, they used science as an obvious example, while those opposing the vaccine also used science as an obvious example. I will tell you, I received two vaccine shots. I did not get the booster. And right now I feel very dirty for having ever gone and gotten one. But at the time, there were all these threats from the government. Again, they're giving you a choice. It's not really a choice, but they were threatening us with, you know, well, if you want America to reopen and making it feel like, well, even if America partially reopens, if you want to go see a sporting event or a concert, you're going to have to show proof of vaccination. That is the only reason 
reason I succumbed to the ridiculous pressure and threats from our government to get the vaccine. I did not do it early. I did it, you know, maybe, I don't know, four or five months after they started rolling out, but I held off for a while. And now it's been irrelevant. America reopened anyway. No one is requiring proof of vaccination to get into a concert or a sporting event. But even if they did, what does that matter? Requiring vaccination status to enter any establishment or large venue is completely irrelevant. Just because you're not vaccinated, it doesn't imply that you actually have COVID. And if you are vaccinated, it doesn't mean that you can't get spread or currently have COVID. Let's look at some of the similarities between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Can I catch COVID if I don't get the vaccine? Yes. Ha 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 ha. I'm vaccinated. I can't catch COVID. Oh, wait, what? Can I spread COVID if I don't get the vaccine? Yes. <laughs> I'm vaccinated. I can't spread co- Oh, wait, what? You had the finger quote choice to get vaccinated, granted despite being made to feel like the lowest of the low if you didn't, despite the fact that the scientific outcomes of having the vaccine or not having the vaccine being pretty, pretty identical. So that's kind of a way that people are picking and choosing facts and turning science into something objective and perspective-based, and that's not how facts or science should be. Along the same lines, we have all these social causes out there, and you have a choice as to which social cause you want to support. But I want to tell you, it is okay to support both black people and the police. You don't have to draw a line in the sand. And also, just a heads up, supporting a social cause does not equate to making a difference. Your voice is not heard, in case you haven't noticed. Black Lives Matter, that movement, it started in 2013, nine years ago. Do you feel like anything's changed in regard to that movement? I don't. But every three or four years, something happens, and then there's big marches and things like that. But just being loud for a short period of time doesn't actually invoke change. But people want to feel like they're a part of something. Kind of goes back to my last episode of creating identity. People want to feel like that's part of their identity. I support this movement. Kind of like the way that people use social media Media, like on Facebook, you know, you can put special frames around your profile picture that says, I got vaccinated. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. You can find all these little frames that you can put around your stuff to show that you support something. Putting a frame around your fucking picture is not support. If I tell you that I sincerely hope that your big tits don't sag really low, I'm not providing the same support as your actual brawl that is doing something. Me just saying something or thinking something isn't actual support. It's just a thought. It was a horrible analogy. So let's go to one of my favorite topics, social media and general media, just, you know, news, TV, etc. You've got choices there. You've got a handful of choices, many of them owned by the same people and companies. You've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. When it comes to like news outlets, you've got, you know, a handful of those choices as well. Although pretty much all of them are all sitting on one side of the aisle or the other. They are really no different than like the Senate or the House of Representatives where it's all blue or it's all red. There's not really a true independent or prominent third-party media outlet out there. And if an independent network tried to crop up, they would instantly fail. And that's why probably no one is even really trying to do that because they know it 
it's not viable. It's the same thing as going to the ballot box on election day, and even though you might want to be independent, have independent thoughts and ideas, you still end up just voting for the blue or the red because you feel like, what's the point? That's exactly what's going on with our media, and that's why we're always being served blue or red. Nothing in the middle. So pretty much the last thing I want to discuss when it comes to choice is what I will call consumerism. And the fact is, is here in America, although a lot of people want to talk about, you know, socialist ideas, community, the capitalists and the the rich people are just a bunch of money grubbers and pieces of shit. We all embrace capitalism and consumer-based approaches, despite the fact that we have different political, religious, or ideological perspectives. You know, speaking once again about George Carlin, one thing that, you know, I heard him say in that documentary and along the lines of what I was saying earlier about our presidential nominations is he said, you can go into an ice cream shop and be like, how many flavors you got? And they'll be like, we got 31 flavors. Okay, but how many presidential choices do you have? You have two. That's kind of messed up. Just like, you know, you can buy the same Coke in three different variations. Coke, Diet Coke, and Coke Zero. Let's not forget caffeine-free Coke and caffeine-free Diet Coke. But this type of finger quotes choice that they're giving you, it's, you know, basically allowing companies to make more and more money off you for basically the same shit. I also hate the fact that when you go to the store, why is it okay for a company to offer a standard version of their product, but then also offer plus or extra versions? If they know they can make a better version of their product, why isn't that the only version that they sell? Why offer a shittier product? I'll tell you why, because that allows them to up price certain things to make you feel like you're getting a better product. Or on the flip side, they're appearing to downprice a certain thing and give you a shittier version of what they are actually capable of offering. That's messed up. You know, think about any aisle in any grocery store, gas station. You have multiple versions of every product to choose from at a whole bunch of different price points. You know, it's the same with gasoline, which is getting pretty out of control right now. I'm just gonna say. But we've all been trained to buy things based on our economic and class standards. And those companies know that. That's why they offer the same product over and over with just these slight little variations at significant price differences. I tend to buy the more generic versions of things. Like for most of the stuff that I buy, I'll just buy Kroger brand stuff. Kroger is primarily where I shop. I won't buy Hellman's mayo. I'll just buy the Kroger version of mayo. I won't buy Heinz ketchup. I'll just buy the Kroger version of ketchup. Yeah, I'm sure there's a slight difference, but I've been buying the Kroger version for so long, I'm used to it. Same thing with like sliced cheese. I'll be honest, when my mom came to visit me a few weeks ago, she bought me some sliced cheese because she didn't like the fact that my fridge was more bare than she cared for, even though it's like, I'm the only one in this house. I don't need a shit ton of groceries. Mom, don't buy me anything. She didn't listen. So she bought me cheese, which I've now moved on to that cheese in my fridge, and it is Kraft American Singles. And I will tell you, there is a different color to the Kraft singles versus the Kroger singles. There is a slightly different taste. Not sure that I have a preference, one or the other, but I'm not a rich dude. But even if I was a rich dude, I don't know that I would just go start buying all the top of the line shit when it's pretty much the same. That seems stupid. So yes, there is a lot of economical and class standardization that goes on when people select and make purchases. If you're really rich, you don't want to be seen as buying the cheap shit. You buy 
buy the expensive shit, even though it might taste identical to the cheap shit. And all of these companies know that about us, and they've trained us to be that way, and that's why they continue to do that. You know, you look at, like, media, like streaming apps and stuff, that's become part of the, you've got all these choices, kind of. You know, you can choose to get Netflix, but you can't choose what Netflix offerings or shows that you get. You get one fixed price and you get all their shit. That's, again, not a huge choice. But I can't tell you how many times I have seen Hulu, Netflix, all of these providers just, oh, we're sending you an email to let you know that we're about to increase our prices by 10%. Sorry about that. But now you're locked in. You're watching the shows and the services that they provide. So you don't really cancel it, but whatever happened to contract? I can't send them an email and say, I've decided that uh, I only watch a portion of your content, so I'm going to start paying you 10% less. No, that's not how it works. But they can get away with that because we all agreed to let them do that shit when we signed up. But they've also trained us with these super long, fine print terms and conditions with every app or every service that you purchase that it's 400 pages long. They know you're not reading it. Everyone just scrolls. Where's the accept button? Yep, I accept. I didn't read a word. I accept. That's what everyone does. They have trained us to do that. And that gives them the ability to change the price willy-nilly. And there's not shit we can do about it other than simply canceling the service. Now, that's assuming that you're not in some kind of service that requires a multi-year contract like some of these wireless phone companies. Speaking of wireless phone companies, let's look at, you know, now all of a sudden they're all doing these commercials like, look at us, we're offering the same services and rates to existing customers instead of just the new ones. Shouldn't the person who's been with a company for 10 years get a better deal than the guy who just signed up yesterday? What the fuck? You're proud of that? That you're just now doing that? That's always annoyed me. I'm sure it's annoyed a lot of people. One thing I'm going to talk about only because I've heard a lot of advertisements for this lately on the radio or just different places is a new company called Truebill. Truebill Truebill.com. Basically what Truebill does is it says, hey, you know, you're probably paying a lot of extra money on subscriptions for streaming services and apps that you don't even use. If you link all of your accounts to Truebill, we'll provide an overview. And then if you want to cancel that service realizing you're not using it well all you got to do is click this cancel button through the Truebill app and we'll take care of it for you it is a total scam look you have to link your accounts to Truebill to have them show up in order to cancel them if you're logging in to link your account or taking the time to do that you can just go cancel the account on your own why are you paying a company to do that it's so stupid but it's just another sign that people will sign up for anything if they think it offers convenience but they're not paying attention to the fact that it's the opposite of convenience. We've been trained, once again, in that regard, to pay for perceived convenience. So, when it boils down to it, we all feel like we have just a ton of choices. You don't have that many choices. And you only have choices that are made to you by the people that deem what choice you're going to have to make. Sometimes, one of the best ways to exercise choice is to simply not choose. That may be hard to wrap your brain around, but, you know, it's It's like I said, you know, maybe instead of just clicking, I agree, I just say, you know what? I'm not going to sign up for this service until they make it very easily clear to me what this service involves, what my expectations are going to be. So, I mean, that's pretty much all I have to discuss on the illusion and the idea of choice. 
And just with the idea of choice, you have a choice what podcast to listen to. So if you don't like the stuff I have to say, you can choose not to listen. You can also choose to tell everyone you know that the Jeff Becomes Jeff podcast is freaking amazing, and you better listen. As always, I want to thank all of you for continuing to tune in week in and week out. If you want to follow my irrelevant social media pages, you can do so on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Jeff Becomes Jeff. Until next time, I'm Jeff. is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above we wings. The power of God is an awesome God. And I'm new and improved Jeff. All right, all right, all right. Good night. to the devil and I prayed and I showed him the mess that I've made and I cried and I cried and I cried a million times over but the devil just laughed in my face I went to the God of fire and said can you turn the heat a little higher cause I've been burned and I've been burned Times over, but he just covered me with water. So I went to the Lord of the sea. Say, won't you come wash over me? Cause the roads and the woods have been winding a million times over, but she receded from. Covered him with water from the lake.